It's good to wake up this morning and know we live in a wonderful place of peace in our community, relatively speaking. Certainly a place of peace to come to in the morning here at Calvary Baptist Church and enjoy each other's fellowship and the unity that we have here in this wonderful congregation. But if you like me, when you turn on the news each evening to keep up on what's going on in the world, uh, peace really isn't the word you could use to describe what's happening in our nation or in the world. Probably one of the most astounding peaceless places has been Ukraine. And night after night, as I see those images of Kiev and Kharkiv and other cities in Ukraine, my heart is really deeply, deeply moved and troubled. I've been to Ukraine, and I've preached in many Christian churches in Ukraine, in Kiev, in the suburbs of Kiev, some of which were devastated by Putin and his armies, Kharkiv and the other cities. I know Misha Starkov, Pavlo Parfenyuk, Sasha Kravchenko, and Alexander, the pastor that I taught one time in a class for pastors, sitting right near the front row, and uh, I can remember him like it was yesterday, who literally had already spent years in a Soviet gulag when the communists of Russia were persecuting, persecuting the Ukrainians before this time. But one time when I was traveling outside of Kiev to a, on a train to a village that was a good hour and a half or two away on the Lord's Day to preach with a group of Ukrainian Christians who'd come along with various instruments, and we came to that farm village and we went into the farmyard and there were rough-hewn benches placed throughout the farmyard, and people became, came from the village filling up those seats and the service began. The Christians would sing a hymn. Others would sing along as they could. Then an instrumentalist would play. So another hymn would be sung. And then another Christian would stand up and quote a poem. And then the first preacher would preach for about 15 minutes. And then there'd be another musician play an instrument. And the second preacher would preach for about 15 minutes. And then it was time for me to preach for 15 minutes or for there to be a miracle, we might say, uh, for that to happen. And through a translator, uh, translating into Ukrainian, I preached that first message. And just as I was finishing the first message from the Gospels, a whole other group of people came into that farmyard, came into the back rows where those benches were set up, and some stood behind those benches. And I turned to Sasha, the translator. I said, Sasha, what should I do? He said, preach another sermon. And so I preached again. And this time I preached from Luke 15 on lost things and how God, by his grace, seeks out that which is lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And I invited anyone who was there who did not know Christ, who was a lost one, who needed to be found to turn their life over to him and trust him as God and Savior. And while I was finishing, a big, tall guy in his early 30s, prematurely gray, kind of white hair, 
I later learned his name was Alexander, very popular name in Russia and Ukraine, came forward from the back. He was part of that late group, walked forward, and, and literally about five feet in front of me, fell down on his knees and lifted his hands and began to pray in Ukrainian. And Sasha quickly translated that for me and said, he's calling on Christ to save him from his sins. Alexander was born again that day. But the beautiful story is that he was brought from a neighboring village village to that special evangelistic outreach where there would be an American preacher and the people in that village in the church there, which was very close to Alexander's home, had been witnessing to him for Christ for a full year. And they urged him to come along with them, and the outcome was his trusting the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the gospel. Their spirit-empowered witness drew Alexander to Christ, brought him that afternoon to that place, caused him to open his heart to our Lord and our Savior. You know, after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and just before his ascension, he explained what happened at his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and for providing eternal life for people. And he said that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This was found in Luke 24, 47. Well, in the second volume of Luke's works after the Gospel Luke, we're talking about the book of Acts, where Luke presents the life and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Acts presents the birth of the church, the body of Christ, a very similar idea is stated as is found in Acts or in Luke 24. And it's stated right in that opening chapter of the book of Acts where we find in that passage these verses. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the, what the Father had promised which he said, ye heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know periods of time or appointed times which the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall become witnesses, my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. And that is exactly what we see happen from that point forward in the book of Acts. With the coming of the Spirit of God upon the disciples at Pentecost, with the spreading of the gospel around and throughout Jerusalem and the vicinities in Acts chapter 1 
through Acts chapter 7. The great power of God, the Spirit of God, to empower his people to bear the testimony of the gospel to those who were not saved. Now, as we concluded last week, we learned of the death of Stephen, this deacon, who powerfully preached, a man of unusual grace and faith, but he was stoned. And a great persecution of Christians ensued after that stoning, led by none other than Saul of Tarsus, later to be called Paul, the great apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those believers were scattered. And that brings us to Acts chapter 8, where I'd like you to turn in your Bible this morning. And I want us to look at the first 25 verses. It's a little bit to read, but it's not long. It's short. And we're going to learn some powerful lessons from this passage. Verse 1 says, Now Saul approved of putting Stephen to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and mourned loudly for him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and he would drag away men and women and put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went through places preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Christ to them. The crowds were paying attention with one mind to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed or limped on crutches were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now a man named Simon had previously been practicing magic in the city, and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And all the people from small to great were paying attention to him, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they were paying attention to him because for a long time he had astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip as he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Now, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was repeatedly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they would receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could acquire the gift of God with money. 
You have no part or share in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart will be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. We would have expected a natural reaction out of the disciples as they were persecuted and scattered for them to cower in silence. That did not happen. They went everywhere preaching. Philip went down to Samaria. And we see happening in chapter 8 the gospel spreading from Jerusalem, Judea, into Samaria. And after this chapter, we'll see it spreading to the uttermost parts of the earth that Acts 1.8 teaches. In every case, they were empowered by the Spirit of God for witness. You, we, can and must be empowered by the Spirit for witness for the gospel and for his glory. This chapter raises and answers three very important questions about becoming Spirit-empowered as a witness for Christ. What is that first question? Well, I think that the first question is you have received, have you received, the indwelling Spirit for empowered witness? Have you received the indwelling spirit for empowered witness for Christ? You say, well, no, not me, Steve. I'm just a timid person. I'm a private person. I'm a quiet person. And and admittedly, I'm, I'm a cowardly person at times. I'm a believer. I love the Lord. But it scares me to death to give the gospel to people especially people that I don't know. I don't know what to say. Others are so much better at that than me. I I just have got to leave that to them and our pastors to handle the witnessing. Well, we're answering this important question. Have you received the indwelling spirit for empowered witness for Christ? The Scriptures teach us that we all have the indwelling Spirit now for empowered witness. After Pentecost and the persecution began, then verse 4 says the Christians were scattered preaching the good news. Philip went to Samaria proclaiming the good news. Men and women right off in this passage, we see exemplified that we all have the indwelling Spirit to proclaim. In fact, the book of Acts gives us incrementally this teaching. It's as if the Lord, in inspiration through the Scriptures, is underlining this truth. It begins in Acts chapter 2. It starts at Pentecost 
in the opening verses. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a noise like a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And tongues that looked like fire appeared to them, distributing themselves, and a tongue rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. And immediately there was a crowd of people that gathered because they were hearing the gospel in their own dialects from various places around the Roman Empire, these Jewish people having gathered for this great annual Jewish feast. And the gospel was being proclaimed with power. But it doesn't stop there. In Acts chapter 8, as another underlying this, in verses 14 to 16 in the passage that we just read, the scriptures say, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they would receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And then to emphasize it again, just two chapters later in the book of Acts, after having received a remarkable vision from the Lord, Peter goes to the home of a Roman centurion named Cornelius and proclaims the gospel to him and to his household. And when he does that, again, found in verse 44 in that chapter, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And it doesn't stop there. A fourth time in Acts chapter 19, on the third missionary journey, as Paul entered Ephesus, he was confronted with disciples of John the Baptist, people who had believed John's message of repentance through Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. But Acts 19 says, Now what happened while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, On the contrary, we've not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. He said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Pentecost, Samaria, Cornelius' house, Ephesus, underlining, 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 the Spirit is coming, the Spirit will indwell, the Spirit will empower for the purpose of witness. And the book of Acts, Men and Women, records the history of the church from A.D. 29 to A.D. 59, the first generation of the church. When the book of Romans was written in the early 60s, after the history of the early church in the book of Acts is recorded, listen to what Paul wrote. In Romans 8, 9, he said, however... 
Ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And he further confirmed in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink into one Spirit. Men and women, by the time we are in the early 60s, the time of transition is over. God, by His Spirit through the Word and Acts, repeatedly teaches us the Spirit is coming to indwell, He's coming to indwell, He's coming to indwell, and by the early 60s, He is indwelling everyone who believes at the moment they are saved. If you have not the Spirit of God, you are none of His. You are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, the church. So yes, we are all indwelt by the Spirit to be Spirit-empowered witnesses. And you know, this passage, in answering this question, have you received the indwelling Spirit for empowered witness, helps us understand that this is the purpose for the purpose that we witness to all people. You say, well, Steve, I, I, you know, I really prefer to witness to children. They're much more receptive. <laughs> uh, I do better in ministry with people that I know. Or I'm more comfortable with older people in nursing homes. They don't argue back much. I'd rather give the gospel to people that are in the hospital or sick and, and really need some compassion. Those are all good things. But this passage teaches us something really valuable. It teaches us that we all, though having our own personal inclinations, are directed by God to go to all. You see, no matter their gender, if you look at Acts chapter 8 in verse 12, going back to our primary passage, You see that when Philip preached the gospel, guess what happened? The Bible says, but when they believed Philip as he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized, regardless of gender. Men and women. This was in Samaria. And as you look at the map and the geography of Palestine in the first century, you've got the province of Judea, you've got Samaria north of it, you've got Galilee north of it, and Decapolis and Perea to the east. We're just really very few miles away from Jerusalem. And this city, 30 miles or so. Samaria. Who are the Samaritans? You know this from probably previous teaching, but after the Assyrians took the Jews and deported them to Assyria in the 700s BC, they imported other peoples, and those peoples intermixed with the poor Jews that were left behind after the deportation. So there was a kind of mixed-raced people, and their religion was a very syncretistic kind of religion. It was a combination of Judaism and false religions from Assyria. 
And there was no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. There was a horrible racial prejudice. This comes right out in the New Testament. The Jews despised the Samaritans. They would have nothing to do with them. Remember the incident when Jesus was in Samaria and he talked to the woman at the well and she was shocked that Jesus would even speak to her because she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew? And here is where Philip is going. (laughs) Preaching the gospel to a person, a, a group of people for whom there was great prejudice directed toward them. An important lesson to us. And their philosophy and religion, of course, was very different from Judaism, as I've just explained. And geographically, the Bible says to us that he went to the city of Samaria in verse 5 in this passage. And at the very end of the passage that I read, in verse 25, it says that they went and preached. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Not just in the city, but in the small villages, out in the more rural areas. No geographical limitations, no religious limitations, no racial limitations, no gender limitations. The gospel was for everybody. So this passage just beautifully answers the question for us. Have you received the indwelling spirit for empowered witness? Yes, we all have for the purpose of witness to all. That is is as clear a purpose for the body of Christ anywhere in any generation you will find in the Bible. But there's another question this passage raises and answers about spirit-empowered witness. And that is, are you using your your unusual gifts to open the door for spirit-empowered witness for Christ? Now, Philip was a deacon, according to Acts chapter 6, verse 5. He was one of the seven. He is described there as a good and godly man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Twelve years later, when Paul was returning to Jerusalem after his three missionary journeys, he stopped at the home of Philip, which was in Caesarea, the capital, the Roman capital of all of Palestine, on the coast. He was living there in Samaria. And he had four daughters, the Bible tells us in Acts 21, who are described as prophetesses, unmarried young women. What an unusual and godly family this dear brother raised. So he's living now in Samaria, in the capital coastal city of the Romans. He's raised a phenomenal family, and he's called Philip the Evangelist, 
the proclaimer of good news. He's not identified as a deacon alone. There had been a change, hadn't there, in Philip's life? A change vocationally, a change in spiritual ministry. He went from one role in the body of Christ to another role in the body of Christ, filling one of the four offices in the first century of the Christian church, being apostles and evangelists, pastor, teachers, and prophets. Now, what were his gifts in this unusual ministry he performed there in Samaria? Well, verse 6 and 7 says, The crowds were paying attention with one mind to what was being said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed or limped on crutches were healed. Remarkable, stunning performance of miracles, delivering people from demons and paralysis and lameness. Now, clearly, these were founding era, first century, supernatural gifts. They were sign gifts during this founding era. But the New Testament is full of of information for us about giftedness from the Spirit for the sake of ministry in the body of Christ and to the world. In fact, we find listed gifts in Romans chapter 12, twice in 1 Corinthians 12, once in Ephesians 4, and also in 1 Peter chapter 4. And men and women, there are 20 spiritual gifts listed Seven of them are supernatural, founding-era gifts, but 13 of them are ongoing, permanent, edifying gifts that believers in the body of Christ may possess today for the purpose of building up the church and the propagation of the gospel. So that's interesting, Steve. Say some more about this. What are all those gifts? That's a subject for another day. But there is a principle that's established here unequivocally by what Philip did. He had giftedness from God and great power to do work in people's lives for the sake of the spread of the gospel. And I want us to principalize that because he was dealing with people who were terribly emotionally, mentally, and spiritually uh, plagued by demonic spirits. They were people with physical illness, serious physical illness, and he met their needs. And certainly as we rise up to meet the needs of people who are deeply troubled spiritually, emotionally, mentally, who have great difficulties in a physical sense or great needs in any sense. I remember one time when I was preaching and teaching in Zambia, we went out into the bush about an hour away from the large city of Kitwe where I was teaching and preaching to a village. There was a church there. And then out a little further into the bush, there was an orphanage. It was full of AIDS orphans, children whose parents had died of AIDS, being cared for by the churches, the group of churches in that large city. But they were kids from the bush. 
And there was a single missionary woman, a nurse named Ellen, who operated a medical clinic connected with the orphanage, but not ministering only to the orphans, but ministering to the entire area, serving as a great lighthouse for the gospel. There's nothing that says we can't minister that way in America, in difficult areas, for people who are desperately in need for the spreading of the gospel. If there is any profound lesson in the gospels from the Lord Jesus Christ and in Acts from the apostles, it's this. We should use every means, all means possible to open the hearts of people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through our good works. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven, Matthew 5, verse 16 says. This is God's methodology. This is God's plan. Are there miracles happening today? Am I telling you to get miraculous gifts, to do things like what Philip did? Men and women, I'm not, because I said those are founding era miraculous gifts. Do you believe in miracles anymore, Steve? You better believe I do. Because they do happen in answer to prayer by the, by the prayers of the people of God. They happen all the time. And if I stopped my message this morning and called for testimonies from this congregation, there would be numerous people would stand to their feet and say, let me tell you a miracle of God's provision in my family. Let me tell you a miracle of timing in that. Let me tell you about a miracle of physical healing I experienced after all the doctor's attention and all the doctor's efforts and no one had a solution for the problems. And suddenly, after much prayer, my problems went away. And they were serious, documented medical problems. There would be many in this congregation that would testify to that. And I'd be one of them. It happens. But what we're being taught in principle here, men and women, is that we, by the power of the Spirit, do every good work we possibly can do to get the hearts of people open to us and to the gospel that they may hear and they believed. And what was the impact of the gifts that were exercised by Philip? Well, when you look at verses 8 through 13, you see the impact. Verse verse 8 says, there was much rejoicing in that city. Much rejoicing in that city, as there will be in any community where there is a positive, impactful effect from believers who are serving Christ, be it Simpsonville or be it Greenville, whether it be on your street or in your community, doors will open as a result of good works toward people, that they may hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. VBS, down at the farm, neighborhood Bible clubs, coaching sports teams. What about a food pantry? How about a kitchen for warm meals? I know a church once to provide free haircuts for immigrants and those that needed it. 
They drew hundreds of people and spread the gospel to hundreds as a result of that. Good works opening the hearts of people. What's remarkable, in this situation, there was this guy, a sorcerer, a performer of magic arts, probably demonically empowered, in addition to just sleight of hand, that had people amazed. They called him the great power of God. And he got converted. He was changed, the Bible teaches us. You know, when God rescues a really hard case, a really bad case, think about that for just a minute. What happens as a result? Well, what happened in the case of the demoniac of Gadara? He went throughout all of Decapolis proclaiming the truth. What happened about the conversion of Saul, who was a murderer, as this passage says, ravaging the, tr- the church, destroying it, doing everything in his power, overseeing the murder of Stephen. And you know the rest of the story after his conversion. Just this week, I heard the testimony in person of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. I was awestruck. This woman was a young, tenured professor at Syracuse University who was brought on the faculty of Syracuse to be an advisor to all the LBGT plus groups to teach women's studies. She was gay herself with a Mohawk haircut with a gay lover, and God reached her through the ministry and the, and the work of a pastor and his wife who had her come to his home many, many, many times for dinner. She was writing a book on the religious right because they opposed gays. And she wanted to figure out what was going on with these people. This pastor and his wife faithfully ministered to her for many years, and the Lord Jesus saved her and transformed her life and guess what? Not to this pastor, but today, and she was present with her husband, she is married to a pastor. Total, utter transformation. Can God do that? Does God do that? Yes, he does do that. And what a remarkable thing thing it is when he does. And something else happens because people come with baggage. Rosaria Butterfield explained all the tentacles of sin that she had to get out, off from around her neck and out of her mind because of all that, those years of thinking and teaching after she was saved. It's called progressive sanctification. It was hard. Well, it was no different than for Philip And this man, this Simon, who was reached with the gospel because he was immediately still in the grip of his wrong and perverted thinking that he could provide money, silver, to get this power to lay hands on people so that they would receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter immediately had some very strong instruction for him, didn't he? In verse 24, he said, your silver perish with you, or rather verse 20. He said in verse 21, no part or portion do you have with this teaching of the word. 
21, your heart is not right before God. 22, repent of this wickedness of yours. 22, pray for forgiveness. 23, you are in the gall of bitterness or in the bitterness of bitterness is really what that phrase means. And probably it was a bitterness of envy because he lost all of his influence. He was the great power of God. He was the center of attention. Everybody was paying attention to him. Philip comes to town and that all stops. And Philip says, or the apostles rather say to him, you're in the gall of bitterness in the bondage of iniquity. There was important instruction that came as a result of straightening this man out. Instruction for him and instruction for the believers, the new believers that were there. Because there's always falsehood. There is always perversion. There is always wrong teaching that needs to be answered. The gospel proclaimed and falsehood refuted. So there is light. So we've answered from this passage the question, have you received the indwelling spirit for empowered witness? Yes, to witness to all. And are you using your unusual gifts to open the door for spirit-empowered witness for Christ? Well, do self-examination. Ask yourself about that. Are men seeing your light so shine through your good works that they may glorify your God in heaven by repenting and having faith in Christ? But there's a third question that's raised and answered by this passage, I think. And that is, what are the special emphases of the message used in spirit-empowered witness for Christ. You know, there are right things to say and there are wrong things to say in witnessing for Christ. First, when you witness, you're witnessing, you're testifying to what you've observed and what has happened to you personally firsthand. There is no substitute for a transformed life. And your articulation of your transformed life. But there were different ways that this message that was preached is described in this passage. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went through places preaching the word. There's the first emphasis. It's Jesus as the Word. Jesus as the Logos. And the term for preaching is the spreading of good news. The spreading of the good news about the Logos. Why was Jesus called the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the same was was with God from the beginning. And verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. Why is Jesus called the Word? Well, the Word speaks of communication. The Word speaks of revealing or revelation. And Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. He 
he actually demonstrated before people as a human being, though God, what God was like. He was, as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, verse 3 says, the image of God. He was, as Colossians 1.15 says, the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the focus of our gospel presentation, that he is God. He's not just some wonderful teacher, kind and gentle, performing miracles for people in Palestine and giving many, many interesting ethical teachings. No. Jesus is the God of heaven, the God of the universe, the exact image of him. He is all God is. He's to be trusted and believed in. So when we witness for Christ, we make clear to people who this Jesus is. He is the God who made them. He is the God of heaven, the God of the universe. But he's something more. Look at verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Samaria proclaiming the Christ to them. The Christ. The word in the language of the New Testament is Christos. It means anointed one. It's transliterated into English, Messiah, coming from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. Jesus was the anointed one prophesied about in the Old Testament, the anointed priest, the anointed prophet, the anointed king, the anointed Savior. This is the one who fulfills all that was prophesied about in all the Old Testament scriptures for all those hundreds of years. That's who Jesus is. And he proves by his fulfillment of the prophecies and the living of his life the truthfulness of the revelation of God. Jesus is the God of the Bible. That's the one about whom we witness. Proven to be God by his fulfillment of all these prophecies about him. But the passage says something else about this message in verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were being baptized. This message was about Jesus as the door, the one who opens the way into the kingdom of God. It is his authority, the name of Jesus Christ, the authority of Jesus Christ, which opens the door and allows a person to enter into God's kingdom, both now and in eternity. And what is that kingdom? Jesus said, I'm a kingdom, I am the king of the kingdom of truth, he told Pilate in John chapter 18. In Romans 14, Paul said that this kingdom of God is a kingdom of peace and joy and righteousness. And this kingdom is in you, Luke wrote in his gospel. If you are a believer, Christ is the way into that kingdom, the truth and the life. He's the door into the kingdom. So he reveals that what God is, and he is God. 
He is the anointed one, the fulfillment of all that Scripture prophesied. He is the God of the Bible. And he's the door and the one who opens the way into the eternal kingdom so that a person can have life now and forever, enjoying his mercy, his grace, his peace. Acts 8, verses 1 to 25, raises some very important questions, doesn't it? And it answers those questions for us. And it helps us to become spirit-empowered witnesses. Have you received the indwelling spirit for empowered witness? Yes, you have. For all people. Are you using your unusual gifts to open the door for the spread of the gospel? By spirit-empowered witness? You can answer that question for yourself. And we've learned what these emphases are. What are those emphases? That Jesus is God. That he's the God of the Bible and the fulfiller of all Scripture prophecy. That he is the door into the kingdom. You can be an spirit-empowered witness for Christ in his glory. Now, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Somehow, this is such a hard thing, isn't it? I don't suppose there's anything that is more difficult for believers than to be a faithful witness for Jesus. You ever thought about why that is? That's because this is so clearly and unequivocally the, perhaps the most significant and important command of Christ for us in this world now. If we were just to become holy people and we were just to please him, he could have just transported us at the, the moment of conversion and taken us into the presence of God, and all that would be settled, wouldn't it? But he left us here. And as he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Don't take them out of the world, but be with them in the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, Thy word is truth. He left us here for a purpose, and our purpose for the world we live in is the witness of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there's nothing that you delight more in as a faithful Christian than witnessing, I mean seeing firsthand the power of God happen right before you. That's amazing, isn't it? How do you feel when someone you know becomes a believer? Or when someone becomes a believer and we learn of it here in the fellowship, it causes great joy and great rejoicing, doesn't it? In your heart. You want to bring hope. You want to bring joy. You want to bring increased faith into your own life and your own experience 
seeing the power of the gospel by the Holy Spirit of God transform a person, have them be born again because of your witness, that will do it for you. That will do it for you. Doesn't matter what stage you are in the believe in life as a believer. When I was saved as a 17-year-old young man at a Christian camp, the very next day, the leaders in the group took us to a state park on that island where there was a beach, and we handed out gospel tracts, and I witnessed to a woman, and she got saved. This was the day after I became a Christian. That's the gospel. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Clearly had nothing to do with me. I hardly knew anything except that I'd been saved, that I'd believed the gospel. I just got a call this week, just a couple days ago, from a guy who was led to Christ in my high school by another guy that I led to Christ sitting outside McDonald's in his car, and he became a believer. And he's a believer to this day. Men and women, that's a long time ago at this point. I remember, like it was yesterday, kneeling beside a serviceman, an army guy from Fort Benning in a serviceman center and hearing him call on Jesus Christ to be saved. I remember that Sunday morning when that newly released prisoner from a penitentiary in Ohio lifted his hand at the back of the church where I was preaching and met with me afterward and called all Christ to be saved. And some six months later when I was back ministering to a men's group in that church, he, he was there and he was being discipled. He was being nurtured. The power of the gospel, the power of spirit-empowered witness. It is awesome, men and women. It is joy-creating. It is faith-building. It is reality. It is incredible. It is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to be. It is why we are here. I'll never forget sitting with a cancer researcher in the National Institute of Cancer in Singapore with his wife. And here is this high-powered, high-flown, intellectual, scientific guy calling on Jesus to save him. This is what the gospel does. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It's not just first century, it's 21st century. It's not just the Jerusalem church, it's the Simpsonville church, it's the Greenville church. It's not just for some of us, it is for all of us. It is good to refresh, to resolve, renew yourself as a witness for Christ, because you can be a spirit-empowered witness for him and for his glory. Father, help us. You know how we want this to be true in our lives and in our experience, how we hunger for it, how we desire it, and how we praise you that you've made us instruments in your plan that you you humbled yourself to use us for this purpose in this world. Now help us, Lord. 
Help us be bold. Help us be faithful. Help us not to have a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind, and be faithful witnesses for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.